A very blessed Mother's Day to all of you this Sunday. I want to give you this opportunity to wish your mothers a blessed Mother's Day at this time. So if she's next to you or maybe uh, in the same room or in the same house, go take this time, go give her a hug, tell her Happy Mother's Day. Uh, if you're able to uh, and she's not in the same room with you, maybe send a text, uh, just give a quick WhatsApp. Okay, I'm just going to give you Let's say one minute, one minute should be enough time to text your moms, right? A blessed Mother's Day to all of you, uh, those who are mothers, those who are mother figures, uh, grandmothers, as long as you have a mothering role, uh, today is your day, okay? So take this time to uh, appreciate your mothers and also be appreciated by those who consider you a mother figure. Okay, enough time, huh? You've wished your mother's happy Mother's Day, right? You've been getting hugs from your children, right? Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we examine your word and see what uh, lessons it has for us today, we pray, Father, that you opened our minds, our hearts. Help us, Lord, to discern what you are saying to us individually and personally. May you remove every distraction and Lord, increase our focus in learning from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, due to the patriarchal nature of the ancient world and uh, the, the time when the Bible is set, uh, the Bible rarely speaks about women or rather it rarely highlights the story of women. And so Hannah and her story actually stands out and and since we read this passage in our church bible reading last week i i decided to preach on it for uh today as we celebrate mother's day uh, there are several sermons that I can preach about today's passage uh there's the larger point of hannah's story and how it fits into israel's destiny uh there's the birth of samuel samuel is a type of christ uh, he he exemplifies uh, what Jesus would come to do. Uh, he foreshadows the coming of Jesus. There's also the birth of Samuel, how that's a beacon of hope for the world during the period of the judges, which, as you remember, is a very dark time for Israel. Uh, there are many ways to approach this passage, but today uh, I want to just focus on the character of Hannah. Hannah, who is a mother, and uh, what we can learn from her. Now, Again, when in, in every special occasion, uh, we, every time we preach, it is not only to that specific demographic. Okay, so today's message, uh, definitely relevant for mothers, but if you're not a mother, uh, God's word is still relevant for you. Okay, and so, but especially for mothers, if you're anticipating, uh, if you're a mother or you're anticipating a child in your future uh, or you're a mother figure to somebody, maybe you already got 20 grandchildren. For all mothers, if you've ever looked for a role model, I, I think Hannah is an excellent example. And so if any of you are, or, or maybe you're looking for future mother material, I don't know, uh, look for somebody like Hannah, okay? Now, what can we learn from Hannah's character? And this is going to be the big idea for today's sermon, okay? 
uh, and that is that we can uh, sorry that is that we need faith in God to receive from him and to surrender to him okay let me repeat that we need faith in God to receive from him and to surrender to him now before examining Hannah's character and this this whole idea of uh, faith in God we need to understand the background for today's passage and the background to this passage is different from today, okay? It's different from modern times because back then, infertility uh, was a huge deal. Today, uh, in our modern times, infertility is not as big a deal. Uh, you think about it, uh, a couple can try for children through IVF, uh, in vitro fertilization. Uh, they, they can go for other fertility-related procedures. Uh, they have doctors to, to help conceive, uh, to help a couple to conceive. Uh, there are surrogate, motherhood, uh, adoption, if you can't conceive uh, natural ways. Uh, or you can, you can even ignore children altogether and choose to focus on your career, climb the corporate ladder, become even more successful than many men. Uh, or maybe you'll raise a couple of fur kids, whatever it is. Not having kids today, uh, or not having, uh, not being able to conceive today, is not as big a deal. Uh, it may still be painful for infertile couples who do want kids, but it's nothing like Hannah's time. It's nothing like what she would have gone through. Uh, back then, the barrenness and the inability to have kids was considered a disgrace. It was considered a, a source of shame. A married woman who was childless was considered to be less of a woman because childbearing was considered to be the essence of womanhood. And amidst this shame came the, the, the fact that barrenness usually was seen as the woman's fault. All the women there thinking, <laughs> why? Why so sexist one? Okay, why? Because Having loads of kids, uh, back then, having loads of kids was considered a sign of God's blessing. Okay, it was considered a sign of God's favour. And so if you, you have a, a woman who produces 20 children, wow, very fruitful. Uh, God is smiling on her and that sort of thing. And so on the flip side, people who had no kids, uh, women who had no kids, were seen as under a curse from God that this would be a sort of, uh, a form of punishment. Uh, remember that during that time, if you have some sort of illness, you have some sort of disability, uh, including infertility, usually it was seen as a curse from God, resulting from sin of some sort, either from them or their parents or, or whatever. And so, during Hannah's time, people would look at women without kids and wonder they would they, they would look at that woman who, who does not have any kids and what would be running through their minds is what sort of sin she must have committed to deserve such a punishment from God. And so there was this whole social stigma attached to being childless. It, it wasn't a, 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 a lifestyle choice where the, the, the woman who didn't have a child had more had more me time, <laughs> had more uh, financial uh, uh, fluidity and that sort of thing. She was considered a sinner and under God's curse. And so on top of that, 
In those days, women didn't get any sort of inheritance from their husbands. The inheritance went from the, the fathers onto the sons. And so if Hannah did not get any sons of her own, she would have been homeless if her husband Elkanah had died. Uh, her husband had sons, but they were from a different wife, right? Penina. And so there was no guarantee that his uh, other his sons from another wife would have provided for Hannah. And so it wasn't just her social reputation or her essence of, as a woman at stake, it was also her future security, her future legacy. To make matters worse, Elkanah had this other wife who was able to bear him children. Uh, she would brag about this to Hannah because she was jealous that Elkanah did love Hannah. And so Hannah's barrenness was a thorn in her flesh and it was both her source of greatest grief and also greatest longing to, to the point where she couldn't eat. I don't know if you've ever come to a point in your life where you, you are so, you're grieving over something, there's so much sorrow in you that you have no appetite. I'm sure some of you or many of us will have gone through that before. Or if you've been so consumed with longing and you're just so obsessed about something, uh, you want something so badly that it replaces your appetite and that's all you hunger for. And so Hannah was at this point. She grieved and she longed for children. Now when they, they traveled on their yearly pilgrimage to worship God at Shiloh, remember the Ark of the Covenant uh, where God was worshipped during that time was in Shiloh, Elkanah would give her a double portion of meat. Uh, as was, uh, uh, the practice was to give meat to, to the families, uh, that portion. But Elkanah would give a double portion because he loved her so much. And so Penina would get jealous. She would kachau Hana and she would say stuff like, uh, passive aggressive stuff, huh? like, oh, he gave you that? Uh, that amount of meat, twice the amount of meat that he gave me? Well, at least my meat is alive. At least my meat will provide for me in my old age. You know, that, that sort of thing, she would bully Hannah. And Hannah would start crying and be unable to eat. And uh, to make matters even worse, Elkanah, although he was a nice guy, he loved Hannah, but he... Uh, blur guy lah, probably like me lah, didn't understand the wife. So he didn't understand her and he was asking her, hey, why are you so sad lah? You, you got me already. You, uh, lucky you lah, better than 10 sons, right? And that probably made Hannah feel so much more misunderstood and frustrated. So that was Hannah's situation. Now you have the background to the story, we can look at Hannah's character. And the main characteristic of Hannah that I want to focus on today is her faith in God. The first thing we can learn from Hannah and her faith is from her posture of openness to receive from God through her faith. Now, Hannah isn't the only barren woman in the Bible. Uh, two notable examples that came before her, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and Rachel, the second wife of Jacob, two of her major uh, ancestors. And so in the case of Sarah, her barrenness drove her to have a child through her servant Hagar. And so we know what happens after that, right? Uh, Hagar starts to, uh, uh, the, the, the son Ishmael starts to kajal Isaac, uh, the other son, and then Hagar started uh, talking back and disrespecting 
uh, Sarah and, and so eventually was driven away together with Ishmael and uh, their legacy carries on and now we have uh, their descendants hating the descendants of uh, Abraham and Sarah and so a lot of drama. Uh, second case of Rachel. Rachel also had two children through her handmaiden, Bila, uh, until she was finally able to have her own children. And so, so this was a, a, a time where multiple wives and concubines were tolerated in ancient Israel as part of the cultural norm. Okay? Uh, not that it was something that God wanted, but it was something that the people back then used to practice. And it, it wasn't God's design uh, because the, the result of all these uh, second, uh, uh, third parties and fourth parties uh, producing children on behalf of the wives uh, brought about a lot of unwanted consequences, a lot of drama. And so in Hannah's case, Elkanah's household was probably had servants as well because he was rich enough to have two wives. Uh, so it was very likely that they had servants as well. But instead of turning to the ways of the world, instead of trying to solve her problem uh, with her own strength by having children through her servants or by hiring somebody to, to have children on her behalf, Hannah turned to God to solve her problem. And so Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord and she made a vow, saying that if God would give her a son, she would dedicate him as a Nazarite. Uh, Pastor Ronald already uh, spoke on what a, a Nazarite is uh, and the Nazarite vow, so I'm not going to elaborate on it. Uh, basically, it, it was this process of dedicating a person to be set apart for God and his ministry, uh, distinctive, made distinctive from the rest of society by not drinking any wine, by not cutting their hair for the duration of their vow, okay, and that sort of thing. You, you need a refresher on the, the Nazarite vow, you go back a couple of weeks, replay.penangtrinity.org, uh, go and watch uh, Pastor Ronald's sermon on Samson. And so and after Hannah prayed, uh, so she made a vow to God that if she had a son, uh, he would be a Nazarite. After she prayed, she went on her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Now, hang on a minute. After praying and making that vow, she cheered up and her mood improved. But what had changed? Really, think about it. She prayed, she made that vow, and she cheered up and her mood improved. What about her circumstances had changed? Absolutely nothing. Her circumstances were still the same. She still had no child. She still had a rival. Uh, her husband still didn't understand her. Nothing had changed in her circumstances except Hannah herself. Her faith gave her new perspective on her situation and it brought her to a point where she believed that God would remember her because she had asked of him something in prayer. And so one thing for us to remember, whenever we see God in prayer, sometimes prayer doesn't immediately affect our circumstances. But it can affect us and it can affect our perception and our perspective on things. When we pray, we remind ourselves who really is in control 
and in our faith, in believing what God is able to do, we remember He is capable of anything. And that helps us already to face our situation, even before our situation changes, because we pray to the God who is able. And so in that process, we are exercising our faith to remind ourselves, hey, God is in control. He is able to do anything. And so that in itself can affect us and our perspective. For Hannah, from the moment she made that prayer, her posture changed from one of the, uh, her, her posture changed from one of grief and uh, longing to one of expectancy, ready to receive with open hands. Now, even when she finally had a son, she finally gave birth to a son. You can imagine what a joyful day it would have been for her. Uh, she named him Samuel. Now, the, the thing about this name Samuel in Hebrew is Shemuel, okay? And so Shemuel sounds in Hebrew like the words heard by God. Uh, if you remember from Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, uh, Shema Israel, right? Uh, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, that the Lord is one, and all, all that. So Shema is here. And El is one of the words that they use to refer to God uh, in, in Hebrew. So Shema El, Shemuel, okay, something like that. Uh, so the, the name Samuel sounds like, uh, doesn't literally translate to, but it sounds like heard by God. And so even when her prayer was answered, even when Hannah's prayer was answered, she had faith that it was God's doing, that God was answering her prayer. God had heard her. Now, Jesus teaches us in many uh, places in the Bible about the value of faith in prayer. In his miracles, in his uh, teaching of the disciples, there's this common theme that runs throughout. If you have faith, uh, you can be healed. If you have faith, uh, you, know, you can exercise demons. If you have faith, you can tell a mountain to throw itself into a sea, that sort of thing. But the thing about the faith that Jesus taught is that it was always to be in Him or in His Father, never in those who prayed. And you see, the, the role of faith in prayer is that it shows trust, it shows dependence, it shows the willingness to surrender the situation to God. And God is the one with the power, not us. God is the one who is able to make these things uh, come to pass. And so when you have more faith and these things happen, it is God who makes them happen. It is not you have more faith and you are able to make it happen through your, uh, your sheer power of prayer. Uh, no, it is God's power, not our power. And so when Hannah took the first step to ask God, to not just complain about how he had closed her womb, to not just lament about how she was to be pitied compared to her rival, but to ask God to remove this thorn from her side, to deliver her from her barrenness. When Hannah did that, she had faith that God would hear her and that he alone was able to give what she needed, the way she needed it. And her faith opened her hands to be ready to receive. Now, something to note here, uh, Hannah's request for a son was more of a cry for help than it was a demand for blessings. 
Uh, remember the stigma of t- childlessness back then? Hannah was not praying for, you know, a guai jai who would uh, score 12 A1s in their SPM exam because her other two sons only got 11 A1s and 1 A2. Uh, she wasn't asking for luxuries. She was asking to be delivered from something that grieved her so much it made her weep and unable to eat, uh, unable to eat uh, for a very, very long time. So it's not wrong to pray for blessings according to our hopes and desires, uh, good health, good business, good grades, etc. But becoming mature in our prayer life means learning to pray according to God's will, not ours. And even then, God is still sovereign and he may withhold what we perceive to be needs because he can see further than us, because uh, he has a plan for us that we can't see, a plan that may involve discomfort, a plan that may involve suffering. But maybe it's only by going through that anguish that we end up depending on him or we, uh, our pride is broken or whatever lesson he wants us to learn. So when you pray in faith, please don't go away thinking that just because you have faith in God, God is obligated to answer you in exactly the way you want all the time. Don't lose faith just because God is not answering you the way that you expect. Instead, persist in prayer. Persist in your faith, continue to ask God, Ask in hope, ask for good things that you know God wants to give. Uh, Prayer can make a difference, but pray like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pray, not my will, but yours be done. So we need faith to receive from God. On the flip side, uh, if you don't believe that God is able to give you something uh, that doesn't limit God's ability to give you something, but it does limit your ability to trust God and depend on Him. And that's what He values in His relationship with us. Our second point, we also need faith to surrender to God. We need faith to surrender to God. Uh, God did answer Hannah's prayer almost immediately, it seems. Uh, He gave her a son. At this point, it would have been easy for Hannah to forget about her promise to God. Think about it. Now she finally had a son. Uh, you know, she's gone through the the pregnancy, the birth pain. She finally has her pride and joy. It's very easy for her to remember about the promise she made to God. Uh, and remember, she made that promise in her prayer silently. She was mouthing silently, and and Eli, the priest, thought that she was drunk uh, because her lips were moving when she didn't pray. Uh, if Eli saw us praying today in in church. Uh, all around the worship, he'll think that the whole church is drunk. But anyway, uh, back then, uh, Hannah, she she prayed, her lips didn't move, uh, her lips were moving, no sound came out, and so nobody was a human witness to the promise that she made to God. And and so it would have been easy for her to get away with uh, basically not keeping her promise because no one else heard it. But Hannah was a woman of faith. And she knew that if no human heard her, God still heard her. That was the whole point of her faith. And so she knew that to break a vow that she had made before the Lord would be a sin against God. And so in verse 22, Hannah told her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him 
and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always, uh, ministering before the Lord. Let me say here something about the process of weaning. Uh, in ancient times, infant mortality rates were high, okay? And that's part of the reason why they had so many children, because you, you had no guarantee that all kids would survive until adulthood. So if you only had one kid and then they died, and you know, you, 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 you poured all your, your uh, investments into that one kid, uh, it may not turn up. And so there are many, many, many kids, and so hopefully one survives. Uh, not as crudely put as that, but that was the general sentiment. You never know which kid uh, was going to die. Okay, And so there's this period of weaning, uh, this period between the, the new birth, when the baby pops out of the mom, uh, to the point where the child is no longer breastfed and they can eat solid food and they are relatively out of the danger zone. Okay, and they, they are relatively healthy. And so by the time, this, this is called the weaning period. Huh? So by the time a, a child is weaned, they can be as young as 18 months or even as old as five years. We're, we're not too sure what that period of weaning is, what it may have meant uh, to the Hebrews during that time. But generally, uh, 18 months to five years. Huh? Now, I've never been a parent, at least not to human kids. I have three fur kids. But I do know that the, the longer you've had something that you love, the harder it is to give it up. Especially to give it up voluntarily. Especially if there's no guarantee that it's going to be replaced. Because you grow attached to it. Uh, my wife brought back, uh, she, she brought back three cats so far uh, when we were in JB. The first one, we ended up uh, being able to give away to adoption to somebody else uh, because they, that cat didn't play well with our dogs that we already had. Uh, the second cat uh, was a kitten and so uh, uh, managed to manage to cohabit with our dogs, managed to get into the whole culture. Uh, so the cat that we have with us now is that second cat, okay? Uh, Still annoys the dogs, but okay, lah, doesn't fight. Uh, there was one more third cat that she brought back, uh, very, very, very badly injured. Okay, somebody had, had abused it and all that. She brought it back, planning to nurse it back to health, like how we nursed our Cocker Spaniel back to health. Uh, but that cat succumbed to his injuries. And so after, I think only after two days, he, he passed away. And then I had to dispose. Uh, uh, anyway, so my point is, although that cat was, uh, I, I wish we could have done something for it. It's such a pity, two days, uh, we didn't really get to know him. Uh, but I, I did not feel as much sadness in saying goodbye to that cat as I would if one of my dogs died or if uh, the, the cat that we kept died. After a significant period of time, uh, 18 months is enough to grow attached to something that you really love. Okay, that basically, that's my point. And so Hannah, imagine she bitterly longed for a child. She finally got one. And just when she's had enough time to grow attached to this child, she voluntarily gave it up. 
and in in giving up Samuel to the service of the Lord, uh, she was only able to see him once a year. And so imagine what it must have taken for Hannah to give up her one and only child. It's later revealed that God graciously gives her more children, but she didn't know that at that point. She gave up her one and only son, the one that she had longed for so long, uh, out of love for God, a bit like Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, or rather the, the fact that he was ready to sacrifice Isaac, a bit like how God gave up Jesus for our sakes. And so Hannah's story shows us not only a mother's love for a child, but also a mother's love for God. Far too often in our relationships, even important relationships, God is not involved. Our family relationships are important. We have placed a lot of emphasis on it uh, through the D6 movement, uh, at our conference level in the Methodist Church. We are, we are trying to push for family, healthy family relationships, wholesome families. But even though family relationships are important, the most important relationship to a husband is not his wife. Uh, I've attended and conducted enough Christian weddings to have heard and preached uh, sermon after sermon about how the marriage relationship involves three people, God, the husband, and the wife. And so the husband and the wife, they partner one another, but God is always present and always the most important in their relationship. And so the, tr the, the same is true also for family relationships between father, son, uh, mother, daughter, the, the inter-family relationships, God is present within the family and their respective relationships to God is most important. So as we celebrate Mother's Day today, let me tell you that the most important relationship to a mother is not with her child, nor is it with her husband. Whether you are a husband, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're a father, you're a grandparent, you're an aunt, uncle, uh, niece, nephew, it must always be God first. The primary relationship must always be God first. Because of the faith that Hannah had in God, she was obedient to the vow that she had made and surrendered her son up to the Lord. In doing that, Hannah showed that her first love was God, not even her son, not even her family. And that's I really think that that is the best sort of character trait that any mother or any mother figure can aspire to. Uh, just a further point for us to think about, the only kind of love that could ever motivate someone to give up someone that they love is out of love for someone else. Let me say that again. The only kind of love that could motivate someone to give up someone that they love is out of love for someone else. And so that's the sort of love that God had for us when he gave up his one and only son for us. You may have heard of the father heart of God, the father-like qualities of God's love for us, his protection, his providence, you know, the, the, the usual things that we associate with the father. This is the mother heart of God, the mother-like qualities of God's love for us. The mother heart of God that longed to be with us, 
just as a mother longs to be with her children. The mother heart of God who came to earth as a man and sacrificed his own life for us, just as a mother would sacrifice herself for her children. The mother heart of God who died for us while we were yet rebels, just like how a mother would persist in her love for her children, even if they were rebellious and unlovable.